Hey folks, welcome to episode 128 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Christopher Plaus. He is a lawyer, writer, mountain climber, and the executive director of the Washington Statewide Reentry Council, which aims to improve public safety and outcomes for individuals reentering the community in Washington State. Chris has an epic story of uh, overcoming drug abuse and self-destructive behavior. He's also had an interesting and complicated uh, experience with the prison systems in the United States. In this episode, Chris shares an incredible story of, uh, of, of triumph and hardship and introspection and servicing his own communities. I love listening to um, the diverse stories of overcoming personal strife because it is in those examples that I find solace. And from what I gather, this experience is so individually unique. It's hard to apply hard and fast rules. We get that in climbing a lot. You know, should I rope up if I'm on a glacier? Um, should I rope up for this technical terrain? What kind of risk tolerance do you have? Like, What's a safe way to, to belay or what kind of protection is safe to use to fix the rope into the <clears throat> in yourself, essentially, to the mountain um, or the terrain? And you, I learn a lot from observing other people. And Chris is just a wonderful speaker. If you'd like to learn more about Christopher Palouse, you could check him out on Facebook as Christopher Palouse and Instagram at Christopher Palouse Law. Um, and just for a little bit of context, we recorded this in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic in like April, May, or June. Um, and I'm going to play you in with a track by Christoph Crane called Student Body. Whoa! Could you please give a response to the question that I asked before you put your head down on my desk to take a nap? Peter, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I heard every word you uttered. I'm prepared to share with the others what I have learned. Great, go ahead, but remember to include the evidence you gathered for the point that you're trying to prove. All right, here we go. Let me grab my notebook real quick. Here. Check it out. Well, hmm. My point is this. I went to bed late. I finished all my homework and I started to create. And what I made made me feel so elated. In the wake, I felt it would be wrong to escape it, so I stayed. And lately, it's been difficult to focus on the time. There are way too many pressures that are poking at my mind. They tell me who to be, how to think, and what to be. And plus, all my friends pretend I'm cool, but really think I'm ugly. I'd love to be the student that I know that I could be. But I feel like we're all stupid when assuming we are free. So I appreciate your care. I'm aware that you're wise, but I wish you'd understand. That I'm scared and I cry and I don't want to lie And I guess I should express that I have no clue exactly what the question was you asked And what's the task at hand? What are we trying to figure out? And will I pass in class if I decide not to participate? Will I advance in life if I don't get the grades expected? Will I amount to nothing? Will I be disrespected? I believe that answers are like clouds and open skies And all of them are perfect if I breathe and close my eyes And when somebody makes me feel scared of failing a test I instantly get tense and can barely, barely affects I'm very spacey, I stare at the wall I feel in my notebooks past notes in the hall and only when i feel like i'm not learning then i sleep so maybe it's not me maybe it's the way you teach oh chris thanks for sharing i'm sorry to hear that you've been feeling overwhelmed with that weight that you've been carrying here but i bet there are some things that we could do to make it better class what do you think how about we brainstorm together 
hands up everyone, place your votes, helping a fellow student figure out what he's feeling and why, or continue our discussion on geographical characteristics of Mount Kilimanjaro. You decide. I have an idea. How about when you feel sleepy, you focus on your breathing and think about what you're eating. I learned in health class that the things you put in your body have an effect on how well you process information. I've seen you at the snack bar iron down the donut holes. Do you know those preservatives are one molecule away from plastic? The change in lifestyle is all it takes to take control, and I believe you have what it takes to face and change your habits. Cynthia, are you serious? It's not what he's eating. It's because we're forced to wake up. We're teenagers. We should be sleeping. Ryan, please raise your hand when you have an idea. It's great to raise awareness, but not when someone else is speaking. Ashley, what do you believe? You've known Chris since middle school. What do you see that he can't? Open up that window to him. Well, okay. Guess I have a couple ideas I could share. Yeah. All right. Well, I think Chris thinks too much about what others think. It sounds to me like he's fed up with feeling tiny, small, and weak. Maybe he should start reading stuff he really likes and work out every night before writing rhymes. I mean, he spelled it out. He said he's insecure. He probably has an identity crisis built up over childhood years. And when you're constantly confused and you don't know who you are, it's probably hard to look in the mirror, much less appreciate your heart. Wow. Thanks, Ashley. Now, look what we've done. Chris, what do you think about the ideas that we've come up with? I agree. This is great. It's been a lot of fun. I regain faith in myself, and I feel like I have options. This actually makes me think. How about once a week? We do something like this for everyone in class. Honest, it makes more sense to me to use our time together to discuss the conflicts in our lives that often make us feel stuck. And if we're honest with each other and we honor each other's perspective, then maybe we'll get better at learning how to love. What's your profession? I, uh, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not currently practicing law. Right now, I work for the state government as executive director of the statewide reentry council. And what we do is we help develop policies for the state and advise the state on how to increase the, the likelihood of people being successful in society in the public after being incarcerated. And do you do you hold that position um, based on your knowledge as like a, as a lawyer, or were there like other credentials um, that apply? It's a it's a combination. So I I a had to meet all of the professional requirements for the position. You don't need to be a lawyer, but you do need to have <clears throat> some kind of higher education degree. I imagine uh, plus policy experience working with legislators all the kind of various requirements, ability to work in state government, uh, writing skills, speaking skills, networking ability. So I, I had to have all of that, A. And then something else I'd bring to the table is the fact that I've been uh, incarcerated myself, mm-hmm. uh, both in jail and in the federal prison system. When you were going to school for to be a lawyer or um, to learn about law, was it your intent to be a lawyer or did you find yourself surprised taking on this kind of role? So my, my intention was to actually go to law school and and be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think interestingly, I've heard that a lot of people uh, go to law school and they have other plans. They they think they're going to go into something entirely different. And then it turns out most lawyers actually become lawyers, <laughs> which is a logical uh, step. A, a lot of lawyers do other things too, but I had planned to be a lawyer. I, I uh, wanted to probably practice some criminal defense in my original hometown of Portland, Maine, where I was born and raised, um, maybe do some civil rights litigation, other civil cases, stuff like that. And um, 
that was my trajectory or that was the trajectory that I intended for myself until uh, one day I met a guy during my second year of law school who happened to be the director of national drug control policy for President Obama. Mm -hmm. And when you were, what made you want to go and become a lawyer? Um, Sure. So it was my, my experiences that I had uh, while I was incarcerated during the, the pretrial process, stuff like that. There was really, uh, so I, I guess backing way up, way, way, way up to my childhood, my mom's stepdad, who I considered my grandfather, uh, he was a lawyer and he was a really interesting guy. He did a lot of work helping people who were going through bankruptcy and really being an advocate for people who uh, didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of resources, didn't have a lot of ability to advocate for themselves. And he was able to do that. And I saw that. And I was, when I was a kid, I used to read through his old case files uh, as a child. And I didn't really understand all of the legal details. But what I did understand was that cases, legal cases, were simply uh, stories of people's lives in their toughest times. Mm. Because lawyers get involved in people's toughest times, uh, whether it's because someone died, whether it's a, a criminal matter, whether it's family law involving custody, divorce, uh, that's what lawyers do. It's it, you know, with the rare exception of maybe entertainment attorneys and, and stuff like that. But most lawyers are you're going to a lawyer when things are are hard. And so I'd read these stories of people from all over the state of Maine, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. But I uh, I got really sick. This is jumping way forward, but I, I battled addiction, a drug and alcohol addiction for a lot of years and wasn't able to pursue the uh, dream I had of becoming a lawyer until I finally entered recovery in my early 20s. I got, got sober. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly enough, perhaps ironically, I got indicted on federal charges in, in recovery for oh. things that I had done prior to getting sober. Wow. And it was during that experience going to first to jail and then to federal prison, but being completely present and aware and awake because of my sobriety mm-hmm. that I recognized for the first time in my life inequities and, and issues that I really didn't, didn't know much about, had only heard about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but due to the clarity of mind that I had then and the fact that I was working a program of recovery, I, uh, was able to see some situations that really made me want to return to that goal of practicing law. Uh, yeah, the, you're, you're adjacent essentially to people who are in all these other disparate situations of their own means. Right. And like, you get to be like front and center with that shoulder to shoulder, as opposed to like from an observational point of view. Right. Like you're, that's your right. Definitely. Definitely. And what, what made all the difference for me was, if I hadn't, if I hadn't gotten into recovery from a severe drug addiction and associated illegal, harmful behavior that went with it, 
if I had just gone straight to jail, I would have just carried that same sickness and attitude and illness and behavior right into jail and prison with me. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that I, I got sober. I found recovery before I got locked up mm-hmm. that made all the difference in the world. It wasn't the jail or the prison itself. It was the trans, transformation that happened within me mm-hmm. that allowed me to be aware. And so I think the pivotal moment for me was when I was sitting in uh, Cumberland County Jail in Portland, Maine, and I had just been arrested. I was charged with five federal felony charges for uh, drug trafficking and a, a gun charge as well. And I was sitting in jail, and I called up my court-appointed attorney, and he told me that there was no sense in even having a bail hearing or a pretrial release hearing, they call it, in the federal system, mm-hmm. because there was no way I was getting out. He said, he said there's no way you're getting out. It's just a waste of time. Uh, you might as well get the clock ticking on your sentence now instead of trying to fight this in any way. Mm-hmm. And you should probably, you know, think about uh, pleading guilty. And we had like, I'm ju- just getting to jail, right? This We don't have any of the details of all the evidence, the discovery. We don't know anything really. And he the way I felt at that point was that I was on basically a conveyor belt to prison and he was not willing or able to be an advocate on my behalf. He was just another player (laughs) on that conveyor belt toward prison. How often do you encounter that in that kind of uh, infrastructure? It's, uh, you know, it's, I don't know how often it is. I think he was actually, uh, you know, not willing to try. Mm-hmm. I think more common is the people who are great public defenders, great court-appointed attorneys, but they're overburdened and under-resourced. Well, I, I think I had, that's more common. I had like a, an experience um, with two, uh, I think they're, they're city or they're state road work. I think they're city road workers. And each, each city has like their own division of like, um, what is it? Has has their own like road work crew, right? And and also, uh, and I had a friend who worked for I think it was like the one of the cities, um, and he would talk about like what the kind of work environment was there was like there in the sense that you had the the hierarchy and the road work crew, and it didn't really move much. You know, there's like the managerial roles, and then there was just the crew, and uh, the the aspirations of that were it's a good paying job. And if it's something you can do for the rest of your life, right? And um, a lot of people going into that situation in his experience uh, would be like, get the job and then sit and, you know, do the job to the minimum um, requirements uh, so that you can keep the job, right? And there was no more like no innovation. Like he was trying to, he was a young guy and um, he was in his 20s and a lot of people were you know middle-aged um, and he was trying to bring about like automatic paper towel dispensers I think this was like 10 years ago and there was so much pushback against it because of the amount of like like the bureau the bureaucracy that was involved with like what would come about the the change and a lot of people in his experience wouldn't want to um, change or push the bar because a lot of it was uncomfortable and there wasn't like these clear incentives right and that's a really easy thing to say but I would more allude it to like if you had a, a 
not that I'm like extremely into um, making everything capitalist uh, or in private, but if you had a business, you would improve the business because you increase your profits. And like you, you would see these people who would just show up to work and they wouldn't try to improve. Like it wasn't serving their community. It was getting a paycheck. And I've seen this happen in, uh, in quite a few different fields, even in like the private industry where I've worked in like a, a long-term acute care and the whole entire kitchen infrastructure or hierarchy there is like you're, um, you could be, be a salad chef, like prepare all like the salad stuff, which is pretty basic. Um, and you do a lot of cleaning and you basically plate everything and then you can um, deliver it to the, to the patients and you can be a chef. Um, and then you can be a manager. The first three of the positions, um, they, they would actually get, you know, more difficult as you went along. Um, no, with no pain, there was no pay increase. So there was just like, there was more responsibility without, um, a sufficient like reward. And with that, like you just have everyone just kind of the same thing, showing up, doing what's bare minimum and like missing the point where it's like, I need to make money and feed my family. Not, I want to take care of these people, like kind of what you're talking about. I want to take care of these people because it means something to me. And I mean, that's the point of the job in the first place. It's like not a job, right? It's you're providing a service. And that's like, you're supposed to be bartering with cash to barter your service. But like, really, it's like a heart to heart connection. Like I work with kids who are emotionally and behaviorally delayed. And it's, you see people going through the motions all the time. And it's like, oh, well, that, you know, as staff, and that makes sense. It's, it's hard. Like you have very aggressive um, children on a day-to-day basis. Uh, however, like, people who do end up showing up there, they, they almost become overburdened. It's just a really, sorry for the rant. It's like a really interesting dynamic that I see, um, especially in public services. Right, right. Yeah, that can, I mean, that can be part of it. And I think that, I think the guy that I had was just really, I think he was burnt out. I mean, I don't know that if it, he maybe at some point he had fire and passion, but whatever, if that ever did exist, it, it wasn't there when we met, mm-hmm. maybe it's returned. I, I don't know, but I just can speak to my experience with him and the, the rest of that story. I think it's really important to share is when I was talking to him on the phone and he told me there was no way I was getting out of jail and that I might as well uh, just you know, stay there and wait for trial and get the the clock ticking on my sentence. I I knew after I hung up the phone with him that he wasn't willing to, you know, advocate on my behalf in a true way. And I called family, I called friends, I was able to hire a private attorney. And the attorney was incredibly expensive. But as soon as I hired him, as soon as his name was added to the case, I I don't even know what they had for dinner in jail that night because an hour later I was home. What? As soon as I hired private, expensive, connected counsel, uh, he called the, the federal prosecutor up and he said, look, my client is being charged with a, a first time relatively... Uh, low-level drug offense. He's in. He's already in recovery from addiction. He's working. He's got a job in the community. He's got a place to stay. He doesn't have any money to, uh, you know, flee the country with or anything. Why not? Why not let him out? 
let him save money, let him work on his recovery. And then if he has to go to, to jail or prison, then he can go. Why not just let him out? And the prosecutor said, fine, no problem. That sounds good. And my original attorney wasn't even willing to do that. So when I walked out of jail that day, county jail, uh, and saw that, you know, so many people that were poor, white, black, or, or brown, and stayed behind in jail just because they didn't have the privilege that I had on that particular day to be able to hire private counsel. It was actually that, that moment is when it, it was solidified that I wanted to become an attorney. So that's the answer to your, to your earlier question. When, you know, how did you uh, want to become an attorney? Why did you want to? Well, it, it started with my grandfather, but it really, really happened the day I walked out of jail simply because I could afford an, a really expensive private counsel. And you probably, you know, if you see my, a lot of the stuff I post on Facebook is related to that experience still follows me today uh, in, in everything that I think about and encounter and, and talk about and write about and everything else. What's an attorney? An attorney, uh, for me, that is somebody who represents uh, clients generally in a court of law and their job is to do anything that they can within the legal limits to advocate for their client's position and their client's best interests. And um, what does being an attorney, like how do you see being actively being at working as an attorney um, a means for you to like bring about the change that you wish to bring? Like what, like how did you see that as a role that you can make a difference? So I think that, and again, this is a great question because it circles back to our discussion of, you know, how I met Michael Botticelli from the White House and how my entire trajectory shifted from practicing law to going into policy work. So when I, when I first thought about law school after I, you know, actually during prison and during jail and then later prison, I... I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make changes by representing individual clients. That's the way I will do it, by helping each one of them. And that's really important, but I had, I had no idea. I shouldn't say but. I should say that's really imp- important. And I had no idea at the time that I was gonna, my trajectory was going to change from representing individual clients to actually working on laws that impact thousands if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and that's the the way to make you know actual system changes as opposed to helping one one person out and both are equally important just in different ways i i love to hear like that that story of um you know being suffering at the hands of like not having of having the the a public attorney and then seeing where where people who who don't have that kind of like that privilege and who are not able to afford a private attorney is going to get left behind and seeing that you can actually step in and make change because like oftentimes i'll hear people who 
are um, who can identify the problem and the means of going about and making that solutions like that doesn't often happen and like including myself right like it's i've only within the past uh year actually i've tried to like take it upon myself to be an active member in you know in my city in my state and in, you know in federal government and like trying to take on the responsibility of like you know politics is like in understanding like the political landscape and like my own society and, and how to use the powers that I have to be able to, uh, to put forth those, like those beliefs and ideals that I have in people in my own community and supporting them. Right. Like I am responsible for that. And if I don't take individual responsibility, then I'm as much of the problem, you know, um, as anybody else at that point. And like, I, I have, like, I've talked to a lot of people growing up, um, you know, whether it's in Idaho, California, um, or Washington. And the common theme is, is like, I, these are all the problems that I see in the society I'm growing into. Um, and I never hear this, like this, the, the path to like, try to make any kind of change, you know? Um, and, and like this, even with, like when the recent, you know, few, few days, right. Um, it's really called, called upon that like even just talking po- politics to people were like a lot of people a lot of the time people wouldn't talk politics with their own family or people who are close to them because they didn't want to like fight and like i think that when you avoid things right the problem only amasses and get lo- gets larger and even if you notice like oh yeah the criminal system seems terrible right like uh, or it could be improved and just recognizing that it can be improved is one thing but actually like going out and, and making systematic change is another and so you're responsible um with so do you you're responsible for making laws in washington or um advising them when they make laws yeah i mean i've actually done some i'm not a elected legislator i'm a a political appointee technically Mm -hmm. with a term in the executive branch of the state government so i I can't actually make a law so to speak but i don't know that any one person actually makes a law I, I have been as active as actually drafting the language itself right in the bills that then become laws mm-hmm. and then mostly working with legislators to, you know, say, you know, this sounds like a good idea. We, we support that. Or have you thought of doing it this way instead? And maybe this change could help people and, and stuff like that. So yes, uh, working with the legislature is a huge part of what we do. I guess even to like kind of further zoom out on that, like what is the, what is even the process of trying to introduce, um, introduce, introduce a law, like drafting a law, introducing it to the legislature and getting it passed. Like if you could just give like a rough overview of what that's like in in Washington. Sure. So I, I think that it, I, it first step is identifying either a need for a new law or a problem with an existing law. And so that would be identifying either the problem or the need, to put it really simply. And then after that, the next step would be uh, one of two ways. If there's a coalition of people and organizations involved, then they could start by drafting up the actual language. Uh, If it's a regular uh, person who maybe doesn't have the ability or the time, then they could go straight to a legislator and say, hey, you know, you know, the dam on in uh, 
Tumwater keeps breaking and it's spilling into my neighborhood and the city won't do anything about it. Is there any way we can make sure that these dams across the state can stop doing that Mm -hmm. and then leave that on the, the legislator's desk and say, I don't know how to write the language, but you can. Um, that's one way to do it. That's actually probably the purest form of quote unquote democracy right there is, is someone going to their representative with an issue. And then the, the legislator is tasked with re- drafting a law to address the issue. Uh, more commonly, at least now is a group of people with, with organizations, etc., will actually tell the legislature this is precisely how we think you should fix it. We just need you to put your name on it and approve of it and introduce it into the legislature as a bill. So, like so a, those are kind of the private organization will take, will take a project on and then they'll bring it to the legislator and, and pose the idea. Yes. Okay. Yep. But it could be an organization. It could be a coalition. It could be a lobbyist for a business group. It could be a lobbyist for an environmental cause. Are those those ever competing to where like a private organization and an individual trying to vie for like the attention of legislators to get like certain change done or is there no bottleneck? No, it's, it's absolutely competing. So for there's thousands and thousands of bills that are introduced only every session. Maybe I've got the, number precise number wrong with thousands but i i think it's i think it's thousands i don't think it's wow. hundreds um i'll have to look to make sure maybe it's like 700 but maybe it's 2000 i mean it's and then you know out of those it's probably one out of 10 if that maybe one out of a hundred that actually end up becoming a law and from the say thousand bills that are introduced, there's 10,000 other ideas that don't even make it as far as a bill. So if, if someone wants to make change, if they're able to go to a lawmaker with a bill and say, this is how we can fix this. As long as the lawmaker agrees with the principle, they'll probably introduce it. Mm. Um, I shouldn't say probably there's a much stronger likelihood because it's going to take them a lot less bandwidth than if you just come with the problem alone. Uh, so that's, that is helpful just in anybody who is, you know, notices a problem. If you're able to work and draft a law or at least draft a proposal for a solution, that's way more effective. And absolutely people have different interests and individual uh, interests are sometimes not, are not often heard as much as if, you know, 5,000 nurses who belong to an organization mm-hmm. and they live in the district where uh, somebody is facing re-election or some of them live in there, that's going to be a stronger voice than one individual who goes in and they're going to be more powerful. And theoretically, like if if you're looking at, you know, Sometimes you can like these like big groups of people, whether it's like organizations, you know, or, you know, even corporations, like that's just big groups of people, right? It's like a collection of ideas and, uh, and those group of people are operating off of those collection of ideas. And like, it's all it is, is like, a, you know, individuals, right? And do you, do you see any, any like problems or, or shortcomings with the way it is now? Um, 
how the individual and organizations um, interact with like legislators and can bring things to legislators? And do you, do you wonder like, do you ever like speculate or um, see like potential solutions in the future, like ways that you could like leverage technology or something of the sort? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, accessibility to government for the, the people who have the, the most dire needs are the people who are also least likely to be uh, quote unquote connected with decision makers at the highest levels mm-hmm. of government, whether that's local, state, or federal. So, you know, people who are actively experiencing uh, poverty, drug use, violence around them, they probably do not generally speaking, and this is going to sound sarcastic, but I don't intend it to be, they don't have a paid lobbyist, you know, on staff. Um, so they're hoping and, and relying or, or at least, you know, on proxies or people and organizations who are, who are representing them. Um, and, and we'd hope that they're understanding their interests fully, but may not be. Uh, whereas if you've got a, a oil company, for example, they've got a lawyer, they've got a lobbyist, they know exactly who the politicians are that can make these decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't have to be oil. I'm just using that yeah. arbitrarily. It could be REI. It could be any organization that has uh, you know, power and, inf- and, and through that money, through that access the access creates them necess- in, in that and having that access in which creates influence doesn't necessarily make them inherently like evil or bad right no not at all it just makes them powerful yeah and a lot of people don't have that power and they're you know the only voice for a lot of uh groups of people are are any kind of nonprofit or advocacy organizations that uh, take it upon themselves to basically speak on behalf of a group mm-hmm. of people. Uh, and sometimes that's done in a really just and inclusive way. And so- sometimes it isn't. Um, it's interesting too, because since it's, it's handled in, in that um, in the private way where all different kinds of organizations can come up with solutions, then it's left onto the onus of that organization instead of the governing body itself. Right. Cause like if that right, were handled right. entirely by the state, it'd be like, Oh, bureaucracy and you'd see like political and civil unrest because now the government is responsible for screwing it up whereas if you have like 15 organizations i mean some of them are going to you know be unjust in in their actions and some of them are going to be just and you could just vote with the i don't know you know use our or like capitalism economy to be able to vote with your dollar and donate or, or whatever it may be with your attention. I'm not saying that right now it's ideal, but just throwing it all out, throwing the baby out with the bathwater seems like a pretty um, bleak uh, circumstance. Right. Yeah. I mean, we def. I think it definitely is really important that the community members and community groups are able to be involved in government. I really wish there was more of it. An interesting development that I've noticed during the COVID-19 crisis is uh, for people that do have access to internet Mm -hmm. um, or at least a phone, the the accessibility to state government and to policymakers has actually increased substantially during COVID-19 because meetings that are, are open to the public 
are truly being made available now via Zoom and Skype mm -hmm. or conference call, whereas those options were always almost always secondary, mm -hmm. almost like an afterthought, and now they're centered. And now that information is being spread widely, at least by um, the statewide reentry council that I'm the executive director of. And what we found is for meetings where we used to have 10 or 15 people participating, we're having 50 plus people wow. participating. Um, and at least in part of it's because the urgency mm -hmm. right now, there's, there's no doubt there's an urgency for people being released from jail and prison to be housed, to be employed, to have health care now more more so than ever before. Not that those weren't all essential anytime. Um, but I think the other reason, and this is what we want to carry on after this is over, is the accessibility of, you know, assuming someone has broadband or even a cell phone with service they could join the Washington statewide reentry council meeting from wherever they are uh, rather than trying to potentially get time off work, secure childcare, travel hours in the car uh, and make it to a, you know, a, a meeting held somewhere in the state. It's just the chances of all those things happening for the folks who need to be at those meetings the most are, are really uh, not that great. Whereas you click on a button from your cell phone to a link and it connects you in and then you're listening and you're in the room. That's so in a way the, you know, people talk about how we're in some ways disconnected due to social media and constant cell phone use where we sacrifice some of that personal connection of being face to face in person with someone. I think that's absolutely a legitimate concern but on the other hand, we've seen a huge uptick in, in accessibility yeah. uh, for people to actually participate in the government themselves. Oh, that's so cool. And, and I even think about like the, the bandwidth is, is incredible because you don't really even have like the, the bottleneck, right, of being able to provide like all the content for everything and you know within the government it'd be really cool to even be able to have like a, an rss feed where you can listen to like the audio briefings of different governing bodies in your state so that you could be well informed because then everyone you know like has that time to be able to fill with just audio and it's super accessible because all you would need is like a smartphone with the occasional internet connection and i think xfinity even like uh i don't know if they're still doing it but i know they made their all their wi-fi free which was interesting and I know like a lot of cities here in Washington, um, the bigger cities um, are even have free city Wi-Fi, which makes things right, very right. interesting. Wow. Yeah. And there's a, there's a website, tvw.org, where virtually all state government affairs are recorded and then kept online. I, th I think in perpetuity, I think pretty much forever. Maybe they, maybe if a meeting is several years old, they take it down. I'm not sure, but tvw.org has every meeting that they've ever covered of ours and all sorts of stuff. Um, you want to hear a hearing from 2016 on a gun bill? You can go pull it up and listen or watch. Wow. That's really cool. And it seems like it's like, the way that you, the perspective you put on like the legal system and, uh, you know, being a lawyer, um, 
is really interesting because I would have never like drawn similarities to the services that like a psychologist and a social worker um, were to offer in terms of public services. Like I've always seen it from like that kind of corporate angle where like it's someone who's basically trying to the corporate angle and also like the drama and the um, the commercialized view where it's like it's someone who's trying to get somebody off the hook, right? as much as they can, even if they were like innocent is to protect, protect their rights and to not get them like wrong, wrongfully um, put in prison. And I didn't realize that like you make a fit or like a, a very interesting point because even down to like uh, what, like civil cases, you're essentially not able to come to a determination and you need someone else to like, or a group of people to do it for you. Right. And, and you have that, like you're going to a place of discourse and you're using all of these laws that we had set out, which is like over our entire society to put it against that. And you're, you're using like extreme nuance and thought and like, and you're socializing your problem, right? Like you're bringing it onto the table as opposed to like that, like that brash and barbaric, like I want this. Like you're the person who does it more so than a psychologist does even like, you know, if you're having trouble in your life, you go to a counselor and it's like, you know, you need help and you need, you need, uh, you need help so that you can improve your relationships. But like you're engaging with like law when you're at the point where it's like, I need you to sort this out for me. And, and that, that's wild. I've, I've never thought about that. And it seems like, like as a, as a way to, to hash out, um, differences and also to determine how people should be um should be like served consequences for certain things whether it's like you know stealing or or murder like it's pretty incredible definitely i think it's it's interesting that you brought up psychologists or psychiatrists or counselors because uh, another name for a lawyer is a counselor at law mm. And so a hat that we, you know, people you'll probably, you've heard it maybe, you know, people referring to lawyers, especially a judge or another lawyer would call a lawyer counselor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a big part of our, our job, even though I'm not currently practicing it, people still come to me every day. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's some, some lawyers, it really is courtroom drama, but that's such a small fraction of your time generally compared to the amount of time where you, if you're working with clients, two human beings or more mm -hmm. uh, interacting with each other. And a lot of the time you know, an attorney's job is to help the client determine their best interests. Uh, it's an interesting thing because we are also beholden to our client's wishes Mm -hmm. even if they're not within their best interests. <laughs> what? So that we have to represent our clients' uh, wishes. And so they might say, you know what? I want to stay in jail. I don't want to get bail. And I'm saying hypothetically, this yeah. is very rare. Uh, or you, a better example is they might say, I want to get out, right? I want to get out of jail. And we may know that they have a severe drug addiction. Right. And they, there's a chance that they could overdose if they're let out. Unless we have a, a, a real direct knowledge of an immediate threat to their health or something, we can't as attorneys go ahead and then say, you know what, I think my client Bob should just stay in jail. Wow. Uh, we, we have to listen to their 
to their wishes um, and represent them, except in incredibly rare circumstances. Uh, but that doesn't mean we, we can't have a conversation with them privately mm-hmm. and serve in that counselor role where we can say, are you sure you, you, know, you want to make this decision right now and here are some of the consequences that could come from it? Mm-hmm. We can do that. That's perfectly fine. But if the client says, no, no matter what, I'm going with this decision, we have to do that. We, we represent the client's wishes, uh, even if it may be detrimental to them, which wow. is a whole, that could be a whole podcast probably on, on that. So interesting. Uh, dynamic. Wow. So if someone wants to plead guilty and we've explained everything to them and we think we can, you know, maybe beat it in trial, mm-hmm. uh, if they're committed to pleading guilty and they understand it fully and there's no lack of understanding there or, um, you know, lack of ability to understand, we have to we have to honor that wish. Uh, so it's really an interesting circum- circumstances. So like you're in the situation where you're trying to help someone navigate the legal system to the best of like navigate the legal system to the to the to what their desires are ultimately. Yes, exactly. We can't impose our desires on our clients. Um, even if we think we know what's best for them, we can advise them all day. We can say, this is what I really think you should do. Uh, that's, that's important for us to do. I think that's required of us. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, if Bob is convinced that they need to plead guilty to, uh, some horrible thing, uh, we're not going to be able to override that as attorneys. And so that's an interesting dynamic, um, and it, a lot of the, the role of attorneys that are working with clients is we're spending our time, uh, part of our time at least, is convincing our clients to do something or not to do something <laughs> 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 while recognizing their best interests. That's, that's what a lot of it is. Wow. Uh, I've worked in, worked in family law a little bit during law school, worked in criminal defense, uh, and you know sometimes you're just maybe quite literally praying that your client doesn't do what they're, they're talking about or thinking about, or you fear they're going to do or that they do do something that you, you know, will help their case, but ultimately they have free will. That's something that I've struggled with (laughs) the, the, um, the portion on free will in terms of people who are making choices that from the outside perspective look entirely destructive and terrifying. And like, I've grown up in situations where I've been in, um, you know, relationships, romantic uh, friendship and even familial where it's like, I'd take on someone's, um, someone's problems and I would try to take responsibility and fix them in some weird way. And like, as if I were to have like all these answers and if that's like, can't really fix someone or help someone if they're not really ready to help themselves. I'd wrestle with that a lot because I'd be surrounded with a lot of people who would struggle with like um, excessive drug use and they would just, their priorities would be tops upside down um, coming to school, like completely drunk and like super high and just like, and I, and I'd hang out with them and you know, I've overdosed once, but like that wasn't because I had drug abuse issues. That was because like I had like a lot of ego and I wanted to 
show that I can handle myself, which is foolish, right? But after that, I'm like, whoa, this shit's dangerous. I got to like slow my roll. And I would spend a lot of time around people and over the time of being in um, middle school and going through this alternative school and graduating, um, like, I don't know, maybe 50 to 80% of the kids, like, um, it's not because it was an alternative school. They would they'd still be struggling with like addiction and like interpersonal drama and just lives completely wrecked. And then like my dad, like he's been struggling with, you know, meth for uh, ever since I was born and he's still at it. And he's like in his fifties, you know, and, um, and he comes in and out of it. And then I'll have my, my siblings be very similar. And like, I've played with drugs, um, but I've never had like, um, an addictive, uh, an addictive experience with them, you know, not to the point to where like my whole life would become destroyed. Um, and I never understood that. And it was like, I always felt like I, I wish that I could help people around me, but I don't know how I can navigate. I could do those same things and just keep going. Right. And like, I, anyway, to make like a long story short is I was in a, I remember I was with this this girl and we ended up getting married and she was a severe alcoholic. And I thought that I could show her that like life is somehow different, right? And over like the course of four years and like one child later, um, I'd realized that like after that child, she gave birth to the child, she just picked drinking back up. She never wanted to quit drinking. And like, that was never her choice. You know, she wanted a kid, but like, I was always hoping, oh, I just hope she doesn't go back to drinking and then just like slips right back to there. And I have like, and as she'd go along, she just completely like she's in jail right now, probably going to go to like prison for a year um, and was in and out of rehab and it's just like really struggling. And that's not for me for lack of trying. And like, and I never know what to make of that because like I am improving my life and then there's these people around me with more or less opportunities who lives they're, you know, completely like breaking down um, over the course of like many, many years. And as I've gone along, you know, I've surrounded by people where I find some of them are just like victims to themselves or victims to the, their environment. I, I really don't know. And it like, it makes me really confused because I just don't know like what to do. All I could do for now is like work on myself and work on my son really work on myself and be a role model to my son and help if someone asks for help, you know? Um, but everything that I've ever tried to like directly, like tell someone has ended up in like peril for me and them and everyone else around me. And, and that's like right. that situation. It sounds like even being like an, an attorney, you know, we're serving like a client. It's like, no, it's like, this is what you need to be doing. And that, that thing of free will, like, I don't, I used to think I should have the right to be able to tell you what to do because like, I know better, right? If your life's better. And I'm like, well, that's dangerous because that gets dark. Right. I think that, I mean, my, my uh, two cents, my, ex my experience on that is that what, what has been most effective with this could, I think this transcends drug and alcohol addiction too, and could apply to financial decisions. It could apply to, to weight loss, any kind of, uh, struggles or transformation is uh, when someone shares their experience and also shares that there are resources available and that there is a solution. 
rather than saying you should do this or you should do that or you shouldn't do this or you need to go to rehab. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, you know what, I've had enough of your shit. You need to go to rehab. Mm-hmm. I could say, I, I got sober when I was 24. This is what my life looked like when it was, you know, in a really bad place in, in active drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the transformation that took place. And this is what my life looks like now. And this is how I feel now. Mm-hmm. So being able to share that and then letting it go. And that's been so, so important for me. Um, so, I mean, when I'm talking about drug use and alcohol use, I'm not trying to convince anyone that alcohol or drugs are bad or, or that they shouldn't do them. I'm simply passing along, you know, this is my, my life in active addiction looked like um, experiencing periods of homelessness, being in and out of hospitalization, being in and out of jail, and ultimately being in federal prison. That's what it looked like for me, and, and always feeling uh, you know, unfulfilled, just chasing relief from much deeper issues where the alcohol and drugs were merely my way of not needing to feel uh, pain and discomfort. They were actually the treatment and that's something that a lot of people I don't I don't think fully understand is that the drugs and alcohol are generally not the issue they're the treatment they might not be an effective treatment they might be a really harmful treatment but they're still the treatment and I had to do deep deep work inside uh, in order to no longer need alcohol or drugs as the treatment. And I I really think that that could be when it comes to sharing experience and sharing resources, uh, that opens the door. Uh, And an example is my relationship with my grandmother, who I actually lived with for years, both as as an adult, my grandmother and I lived together for years. uh, And that was both during my active addiction and during my recovery. And during my active addiction, once or twice, she said, Chris, you know, if you let me know if you ever get to a point where the alcohol and drugs are, are no longer, you know, serving you the way you hope that they serve you. You know, have you ever considered, uh, you know, what would life be like if you weren't using drugs and alcohol and smoking cigarettes all day? And what, what would that look like? Have you thought about it? And she approached it like that. And I said, I said, you know, I, I'm not there right now, but I'll let you know if I get there. And that was the conversation. And then I knew from her and then from some people that I knew that had gotten sober, I knew that they had a path. And then once I was ready, once that alcohol, basically once alcohol and drugs no longer provided me the relief that they used to provide, Mm-hmm. It was, it's really that simple. Then I, I finally said, you know what, this is no longer working for me. I need to either die or try something new. And it was at that point that I had a willingness and the willingness was met with opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and anytime someone chastised me uh, or told me what I needed to do, that only pushed me further into the addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but anytime someone shared their experience with me, and shared that there was a different way that I could live that pulled me towards recovery. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's powerful. 
that's just what, you know, what was shared with me. And that's what I, I do my best to pass along. And do you have any uh, resources for anyone who might be like struggling with substance abuse or know anyone struggling with substance abuse? Definitely. Uh, you know, what worked for me was being part of a 12 step program. So there's NA narcotics anonymous, there's AA alcoholics anonymous. Um, I also did an intensive outpatient program. I, I definitely should have done inpatient, but I didn't, I didn't have the ability to do that. Uh, so it was a combination of 12 step meetings, actually working a 12 step program with a sponsor. Uh, the meetings themselves will generally not be fully effective unless you, the people do the, the actual program, whether it's AA, NA, um, you know, whatever someone chooses, there's a, there's generally a, a textbook, a basic text that has the 12 steps in them. And a sponsor guided me through the 12 steps. And that's what changed everything for me. Um, but most importantly, I needed to, you know, for that work, I was able to um, find a relationship with a higher power. It doesn't need to be Christian or Buddhist or, you know what I mean, any specific religion, I don't think. But I was able to gain faith in 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 God and nature, whatever someone perceives that to be mm. to the point where I no longer felt that I needed to micromanage every single decision mm. and try to control the entire show of everything that went around, around me. Um, so doing that, letting go to a degree and, and it's certainly not to get too complicated, but for me, letting go, as people always say, does not mean I'm going to become a doormat. It just means that I'm recognizing, you know, for people to walk all over, letting go means that I'm recognizing that I need to kind of keep my side of the street clean, do what I need to do, but I can't control the outcomes of what happens in, in my own life and what, what anyone else does at any given time. You, you become and, almost less reactive and more proactive, right? And you can identify like what is in your control, what's out of your control instead of like spiraling and like emotionally derived, like delusions of control right and that's what we we see it so much in in addiction we see it in in with certain mental health conditions with abusive relationships is if x had just done this mm -hmm. my life wouldn't have been that way and that might be true but do you control that <laughs> no so where do we go from here yeah. and then just like <laughs> recognizing that can change everything instead of being trapped in, you know, a victim of our own history. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that was a lot. I, I think, you know, AA, NA, calling, if you're not comfortable with that, if you know anyone who's in recovery, they'd probably be happy to have a, a conversation with you or, or meet with you. And I'm speaking not to you, I'm speaking in, to anyone listening. Um, and... Either that or just, you know, call a counselor, a, a drug, you know, substance use disorder counselor and, and have, a, have a conversation. So those are, I think, three different options. Dive into AA, NA. Uh, if you don't know how to find them, that was another thing. It's a simple thing like this. When you're in active addiction, you're like, I'd like to go to AA or NA. I don't know where is it, you know? Mm -hmm. You can look right in 
on on Google. It would at one once upon a time you would say open the phone books at the beginning. It's under Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but you know Google AA meeting my area. If that's too much of a uh, if that's scary to to just get in the car and try to go to a meeting, there's local hotline numbers for AA where you can just talk to somebody, pick up the phone and talk to somebody uh, without having to leave your house or anything. And there's also online meetings too for AA, for NA, for, I would imagine for Gamblers Anonymous, for, for all of them. So it's really, it can be really low barrier because that's a thing that keeps people in addiction too, is people will have this brief moment um, where they're willing and open and if, it, if that solution is not immediately accessible, that moment passes and people go back into whatever it was. It, it's fleeting. The willingness for recovery is, is usually very fleeting. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because um, I don't want this to sound terrible, but in learning how to, um, learning how to climb, like rock climbing, <laughs> And um, to overcome like the psychology of the fears of, of, of falling and like the ego and stuff. Um, it's so it's surprisingly difficult to be able to overcome whatever group, whatever psychological grooves have already been carved. And like, I've realized that through practice and reading like the, um, like the rock warriors way where you go up in these moments where you're like afraid to fall um, even though you're you're you have rope, you're tied to ropes. There's ample protection into the rock, right? You're not really going to hurt yourself. There's no objective hazard, but like you're going to fall. And so what you do is is you you prevent the fall. And in the reality of like the real world, the fall wouldn't actually most likely not harm you. Um, and the rope was designed for it. The protection was designed for it. All of it's psychological, but the to surmount that challenge of like being okay with falling and breaching that fear is like is like very very challenging it's very challenging to be able to break the our habits that that we've created and the grooves that we've greased you know and i've like had to like hammer my head up against those situations because I've realized that like most of my fears in the situations are pretty delusional. And then I would look at my like, like do a lot of writing on my life overall. And I'm like, wow, I see a lot of places where I'm making these reactionary decisions that are based on fear. And like, and it's affecting not only myself, but it's affecting the relationships that I have with other people. And even like my relationship with my own son. Like I realized like this time where like I have to help him do work and it's like the relationship of like, I'm helping you do work. You're learning schoolwork to, for this result, like all of it puts that into question of like any of like this fear driven, um, you know, action that that's like playing in the background subconsciously. And I think a lot of us, um, experience that and it's kind of hard to to face that except in these extreme um, environments or if you do a lot of like deep work i suppose or see counseling right 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 yeah and, and that's i'm glad you brought up climbing because we didn't really talk about that at all and a big part of my life now it's it might not be climbing specifically but it's being outside and being in the mountains mm-hmm. um and and more to actually climbing. There's, there's two things that I've, I've learned about myself 
And one is when I'm out in nature, three really, be, being out in nature alone without, without my phone and with, with being disconnected from email, from social media, that, uh, what that does is I found that sometimes the uh, connect, total connection to the cell phone all the time is serving or misserving me sometimes in the same way that alcohol or drugs did. Mm. where it's keeping my real processing and thoughts and deep internal conversation down. Because if you're constantly refreshing Facebook and email and texting and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. you don't have time for the internal conversations and whatever shit is in there can be pushed down almost the same way as alcohol or drugs or gambling or shopping or unhealthy sexual compulsions, whatever the same way. And so when I go out into the mountains, I actually had a really cool experience. My, um, after my first year of law school, I did a a solo backpacking trip and, and went through the mains uh, 100 mile wilderness, uh, and ended summiting Katahdin, which I climbed Katahdin every year, Maine's highest mountain. It's a tradition of mine this year. If I'm able to make it, it'll be the 10th year in a row. Wow. Um, every year since I got out of prison, I've made it home to Maine and made it to the summit. That's cool. And, um, but what I found during my time in the 120, you know, it was about a 120 mile trip alone and I thought that once I got out there, it would be like complete Zen, birds, bees, <laughs> peace. And what I found was once all of the distractions, once the phone was taken away, once the TV was taken away, once the computer was taken away, and I was out there, all the stuff that was in my brain and my heart came flooding forward that's what I experienced. And so it, it all came uh, flooding forward. And the way we think about it, talk about it in, in 12 step meetings is when you're actively so busy with whatever, whether it's drugs, alcohol, work, gambling, shopping, whatever, it's like you're driving in a 80 miles an hour in a tractor trailer truck filled with shit. And when you stop, and everything's fine as long as you're going 80. Yeah. Because it's it's all in the back. It's in the back of the tractor trailer truck. But when you slam on the brakes and all that all the distractions go away, all of that shit comes to the front <laughs> and it nails you. And that was my first couple of days in the wilderness on that trip. All of the relationship stuff, all of the self, you know, fears all of that came back and I got to process it for the first time. And so that was, that's huge. And and I'm able to have that process happen whenever I go out uh, alone. So that's one. The, The second thing is the idea of, you know, having a tribe, having a group of people belonging, uh, family community. I found that, with the people that I go into the mountains with and it, and it's a vital. this again, this transcends addiction entirely and speaks to that vital human need for connection and belonging. 
And we all, you know, it might be a bowling league. I think for me, it's, it's like being on a rope line or being out somewhere where it's really, uh, our lives are in each other's hands. And often it's like people I just met and you just cut through that like years of bullshit that it mm-hmm. normally takes to get to know someone yeah. where you dance around each other mm-hmm. for years. And it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. We all do it. Hey, how are you? Good. How you been? Like all of that is cut away, right? When you're in the mountains with someone. Well, I, I feel and, like it's so fucked up when I was getting into um, martial arts. I, I really love jujitsu and, what I I found is like while I didn't really struggle with like full like drug addiction, I really like to to get into relationships and like I was constantly because I got I got married I was a stepdad when I was thirteen and then I got married when I was seventeen um, and I've been basically like raising little kiddos since I was like fourteen and. Um, I found that like when I would do that, I'd have this big old hole that I keep trying to fill. And then I would go and do jujitsu. And I've never felt like I belong more than anywhere else in my entire life. Like I, I didn't, I've never been more close to people. I've never, my, I'm not even as close to my family as I am to the people that I'd grapple with. And it's not because of over the years I've built these big relationships with them. It's the dynamic, like the, the trust elements of like they're choking me or they're, you know, breaking or taking my limbs to the point to where it's like, ow, it's going to hurt or break if you keep going, stop. And they stop every time. And like, they trust me with their children, teaching their children. And like in about like six months, like, and even competing with some of these people, um, they're like my brothers and my sisters. And, and then I would gotten to climbing after the fact. And I realized like these people that I would climb with just completely random people. And it's the exact experience that you were saying. Like I was so close to them that I don't think I could have that relationship with my mom. Like it, I, I've, I've tried, but all of it's like that, like that surface kind of layer. And, and I'm not, everyone's relationship with their parents are different, but I've just never had that like deep bond. And through these two vehicle, like outlets, like it's deeply gratifying. Right, right. I hear you, definitely. You, you said you had three, though. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off. But That's sorry. okay. The, the last one, I, I think, is I'm not sure how healthy it is, but it's definitely pure. Mm-hmm. Is the, This is an experience. I, I Once upon a time, I worked as a commercial fisherman off the coast of Maine, mm-hmm. too, and I noticed that when the weather got really bad and the, you know, we would say we were in the shit basically, like it was dangerous to be out at sea during that time Mm -hmm. is that I noticed that everything else seemed to melt away Mm -hmm. except for the exact moment that we were in. And so it's, you know, people talk a lot about, being present and what does that look like? And I found that there's, you know, you can might be able to get there through, through meditation by, you know, like sitting cross-legged and, and waiting and doing mantras and stuff. And that works for a lot of people. For, for me, I've found that when I'm in those really, really uh, precarious situations, whether it's on a mountain or, um, on the fishing boat in a storm, that's when I've been able to find absolute peace. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, particularly I've noticed it when I've been alone on the mountain and I like to do, although my family doesn't love this, I like to do challenging exposed like class three, class four scrambles. Oftentimes I'm alone for that. And I just know if I slip right now, I don't know, you know, I don't know how it's going to go. I try not to get myself in situations where like, I know I'm going to die if I slip, (laughs) (laughs) but I've I've been there and, Mm -hmm. and I've called it plenty of times and turned back because it didn't feel safe. It didn't feel right. But in that moment, when you're making those steps and you're not roped up, um, I just feel complete peace because everything melts away because it has to. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like everything else melts away because it has to. And I don't, I haven't quite fully figured out if that's healthy or not, but it's only pure. (laughs) I've had that that experience several times where um, like even on like a really technical steep downhill run is one of my favorites. And I would pick specific lines in the cascades where like I can get, you know, as many miles as I can consistently downhill that's semi-technical. So like, because my whole brain just turns off. Right, right. And like, it's like some of the greatest like mental clarity and like space that I've ever experienced in my whole life. And I'd realized that I've been plagued throughout my life with this constant mental chatter. And a lot of the times it was really mm-hmm. ruthless and negative. Right. Like, and, and that's what I meant by like your earlier about how your fears could like subconsciously influence all the choices that you're making, the interactions that you have with people and not even just fears, just like the, the chatter it, and it's doing these things have like given me, you know, in my, average life like a little bit of access to that spaciousness or a little carryover and a little bit of clarity and like i've i've had this thing and i don't know what what your experience is but like if you look at people who are struggling with like these destructive behavior patterns that interfere with their livelihood right like the very serious ones um you're almost in a very similar cycle Except you're you're instead of operating from the baseline and then rising up to this big challenge and then dropping back down to your mundane baseline daily life, right? And then doing it again, you're doing the opposite. You're going below the baseline and then rising back up to your Monday life. And it's like right. like like having that drug is like your baseline and then going out and not having it coming down and then seeking said drug is almost like that whole like that going up the mountain. Like I, I found out like at least talking to my to my siblings and people around me, a lot of these things that I do with like the 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 journey of like learning the martial art and trying to compete and all that stuff that goes in in the heart and in the mind and like with the body and preparation, like a lot of that almost felt seemed very similar to like the path of like getting caught up in like a drug abuse cycle or a gambling addiction cycle. And it's like that that not having and having, you know, the peaks and valleys. And I always wondered like I remember when I used a lot of drugs to be able to blare out the noise and self-medicate. And when I was sober, I found myself, um, you know, having my son with my nose held up high saying, look at me, I don't do any drugs, even though I was smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee every day, even if I wasn't tired. Um, And I would drive to the gas stations. I'd be replacing windshields uh, mobily. So all throughout like to Everett and um, to Blaine here in Washington, you know, covering like a hundred miles. 
And I would stop by a gas station and I'd get a bag of nuts. It was like $2 bag of nuts. It's almonds. Almonds are good for you. This is a good thing. They tasted really good. I didn't eat sweets at the time. I was trying to be healthy, right? And like, I love the almonds. They're salty. They're great. So you know what I started doing? I started going to one gas station every day if I need to gas or not so I can get almonds. And I looked at it and I'm like, $2 a day. Well, that's if I work five days a week, that's $10 a week. It's 40 bucks a month. Like I'm a single father. I can't really be affording this. Well, it ramped up to two bags of almonds a day because I wanted to stop by the gas station twice. I like justified it in my mind. And now I'm up to $80. Um, well, you know, you'd ask, why don't you buy in bulk? I bought nuts in bulk. I'd eat a pound and a half of nuts in a day. Right, right, And it's like, because the taste is just so awesome. And I'm like, look at me. I'm not doing drugs. Like, I can't. And I was like super asshole at at the time. Probably still am. But not like this. I'm like, oh, I don't go to the bar. Look at me. I don't spend my money on alcohol. I'm so much better off. Blah, blah, blah. And like, I'm just consuming these nuts in excess. And honestly, like, someone's like, I'm getting help with my rent because I can't fully pay rent. And like, like I'm in no situation to be doing this. And then I pull up to a customer's house and he's, I smell this. I'm like, Ooh, I smell something good. Something smoking. It smells like mesquite. And I roll up and he's, um, he's roasting cashews. He's like, <laughs> you want some cashews? I'm like, Oh yeah. I replace his window. He gives me the bag is hot. Like there were two pounds of cashews and you know what I did? Wow. I ate those in my 30-minute commute to my other uh, right, customer's right. house, and I never took <laughs> any of them home. And then I'm right. like, it's like I can remove the drugs, but like there, there's this like underlying thing here that yeah, I have yeah. to like watch. And I still do because like I used, I've had times where like my whole like day's been unraveled because um, I remember when I was a smoker, I left my uh, e-cigarette device behind, and I drove 30 minutes back from where I already was on my commute. It was an hour and a half drive, 30 minutes on my way, drove 30 minutes back to my house and then drove all the way back to where I was supposed to go to grab my e-cigarette. And then like when I quit that, I'm still on this like, I'm sober. I quit cigarettes now. And like, then it came down to coffee. And like when I wouldn't drink coffee, I was drinking so much coffee every day that I didn't have a coffee one day and I was getting like shakes and headaches. And I'm like, God, like, what this this isn't like this i can't blame this person i can't blame this recreational activity like this is like a like a philosophical thing with inside of me something that i need to think a lot about and i need to understand why do i crave to be more than i am like why do i want things to feel different why is my experience to be elevated and like and the funny thing is is i think it did I really think my experience, I think everyone's experience needs to be elevated because we've grown up or not grown up. We've evolved in an environment to where we have adrenaline, we have endorphins, right? We, we have like crazy situations that happen. You have to be able to run and to exert yourself and to push yourself, right? You have to feel alive. And like those components just in baseline life, like go to school, come home, they don't happen. There's no like, there's no natural um, situation that creates that dynamic. So it's either like drama and stress in the house, or you have these cool recreation, like some kind of activity that brings that about, that brings that kind of stress. And whether it's like negative or positive, like let's roll the dice. Like, let's see what your family's got. Let's see, you know, what your um, peers have. Do they 
introduce you to like these three minutes? Do they? It's been three. I know it has almost three minutes is done. No, they um like you you have <laughs> you you have like these these ways to act them out and to work them out. I think we crave stress no matter what. Whether it's positive or negative, I, I think right. it just has to do with like your environment and opportunities and the things that you know and the habits that you've created. Like I look at myself now, I go out for runs, like the only kind of drama that I have is with my son. And like a lot of that has to do with, you know, a child who's learning through life. But I don't have like friend drama. Like if they have a problem, they just take it to me. We're so f- exhausted at the end of whatever this activity is. It's like, oh man, like imagine fighting with one of your friends at the end of a day, rock cl- like, or, you know, alpine climbing. Like I don't, yeah. And I don't really know how that applies to people. Like it's kind of, sometimes I feel like even though I'm, you know, I'm unemployed and like constantly riding the line between debt. Like I'm not the worse off situation or, or person, you know, within our culture and society. And I'm not the best off, best, best off. But I look at this and I'm like, I'm really lucky to have the, to have access to these. And I hope that right, telling right. my story to other people and like listening to yours gets people out there who don't have access to them and tries to find a way and has, like you said, organizations, right? Instead of feeling bad about what I'm able to do, trying to find out ways to make that accessible for people who don't have access to that and talk about it so people are inspired to try to make their path that way, you know? Right. But, definitely, definitely. And, uh, is there anywhere that people could find out more about you, Chris? Sure. If it's uh, work-related, the uh, website for the work I do is commerce.wa.gov slash reentry, R-E-E-N-T-R-Y. And if it's personal, I'm, I'm easy to find uh, on social media. Um, so you can check me out on, on Facebook or Instagram and, and reach me through there as well. All right, sweet. And I'll leave all the um, links to that in the show notes as well. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. Woo! I love talking to Chris. Man, he's such a genuinely nice guy who has overcome a lot of struggle and strife. And he's done a lot with himself relative to his predicament, you know? He's really hustled for something he believes in. And it's beautiful to watch somebody unfold in that way. And I love being able to observe people from those situations because I can learn a lot. And his perspective of the um, correctional system, is, in the justice system rather, is, is fascinating. And I'm really excited to learn more about the ins and outs of our correctional system in the future. Uh, I've been gone for a long time. Uh, it's hard for me not to lose myself in adventure in the summers almost become fanatical with it but on top of that there's been so much disruption in my life and frankly all of our lives and I've just taken a lot of personal time to reflect on that and ask myself what I want to do with my own life Um, and I had to put a lot of things on hold you know We all have our own ways of dealing with things. But that time away from the podcast has made me realize that this is my favorite thing that I do. I love getting to talk with people. 
and getting to see their different perspectives, their observations on other people's lives, the world, and their own. Well, I hope you guys have a wonderful week, and I'll see you next Monday. Bye.